Thank you, Paul, for the hymns, for the psalm, and for your contribution to our worship this morning. Very thankful for that. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. I'd like to use a passage from the book of Isaiah to introduce our topic today, which is the purpose of prophecy. Why did God give prophecy? Why did the Lord tell us about things before they happen in great detail, as we'll look at in a particular case today? Isaiah chapter 46, first few verses, it's talking about the gods of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, Bel and Nebo. And the Lord is ridiculing them. Unlike our day and age where, you know, you don't want to say anything bad about anyone else's religion. Well, the Lord didn't know anything about political correctness. All the Lord knew was what was right and true, and that is that he's God and there is none else. After he goes down and talks about the nature of all the other so-called gods in the world, that is that they're the product of men's hands. They have to be created by them. They're carried about by men. They're put down by men. They're dumb. They can't speak themselves. They can't do a thing of their own. And the Lord likes to be very sarcastic and talks about the fact that those who carry them about are just like them. Dumb. But he comes down in verse 9. Verses 9 through 11 is what I'd like to introduce our subject with. Where the Lord says, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Brethren, we have a great God to serve. He's not only the only God there is, but he's great. He's wonderful. He's marvelous. And prophecy is one of the things that proves just how great he is. I want to lift up your faith today in God by pointing out a, a fantastic prophecy in the Old Testament. Because if this is true, if God is able to name something well in advance to the great detail that we'll look at, if he's able to bring it to pass, then, brethren, there's nothing in our lives that he can't do for us. More than that, every time you read a promise in this book about what God has for his people, our brother's been speaking for a number of weeks on heaven, on the resurrection of the body. That's a glorious prospect, isn't it? Haven't your hearts been lifted up by thinking about that? That this world, the best this world has to offer, pales in comparison to what we're going to have. I mean, the best this world has to offer is 70, maybe 80 years of life, of which part of it, we're weak, getting stronger. We hit our peak for a very short period of time, and then we're in a long decline. 
We've got immortal bodies that will never die waiting for us, brethren. We've got bodies that will never feel the effects of the flu, of broken bones, or anything else. We've got a world where the Lord will be taking away all sorrow and wiping away all tears. For all eternity, brethren. That's what the Bible promises us. And when you see God in the Old Testament able to promise certain events with great precision and accuracy, and then you see years later they come to pass, it should build our faith, brethren, that these same promises that our brother's been talking about of heaven, of the resurrection, and of glory are just as true and will come to pass just as accurately. So, what's the purpose of prophecy? Prophecy is the great test and great proof of the existence of God and of the inspiration of his scriptures that he's given to us. Think about it. Only an omniscient God, that's a God who knows everything, can know the future with absolute accuracy and certainty. I mean, only an all wise God can know, can look in the future and know what's going to occur. Only an omnipotent God, that's a God that's got all power, can then turn around and bring to pass every single detail that he's promised. And that's the nature of prophecy. Turn over to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18 and let's see how the Lord himself, early on in the revelation of himself to men, because remember, up until the time of Moses, the patriarchs only had What they were told by their fathers. At the time of Moses, we have written revelation given from God. We have an entire set of priests and a kingdom set up to maintain the revelation of God and bring it forward into the world. So this is where God has begun to reveal himself to man. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he's talking about prophets. Those who foretell the future. He said in verses 18 through 19, he talks about the prophet that he will raise up like Moses. And we know who that is. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. But then he goes on and points out, how do you know if somebody who claims to be a prophet of God is truly a prophet of God? Anybody can say that. We know that Satan himself is able to work miracles. So you can't trust just miracles. Matter of fact, in another part of Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 15, he points out, the Lord, to test you, will send forth a man who will work miracles. But then he'll contradict previous things that God's revealed. Well, you ignore him. Even though he's done a great miracle, you ignore him if it doesn't fit What God has already revealed. But what does he say here? Verse 20 of Deuteronomy 18. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not or come not to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. 
But the prophet has spoken presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. Now, some of you are too young, maybe, to know the name I'm going to talk about. Some of you may know it. But when I was a, when I was a young man, there's a, a prophetess called Jean Dixon who liked to prophesy about things. It was very simple to understand that she was from the devil. Because if you started looking at all the things that she prophesied, if you were very generous, if you were very generous in how you interpreted what she said, only about 10 or 15, maybe 20 percent even came close to coming true. That's a big flat zero, according to this. It don't count. It ain't. A prophet of God. Very simple. Someone says X is going to happen in the future. It doesn't happen. You know they're not a prophet of God. Poor Millerites. The poor Millerites. Back in the 1800s. The Lord was coming. Sold their houses. Got up on their housetops. Had on nice white robes. And what happened? What, 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 does anybody remember what it was called in, in, in their uh, history? The great disappointment. That shows that they were just like the people here that worship Bell and Nebo. Right. They were dumb because they had God's standard and they ignored it. God gives prophecy to confirm the fact that he's God. This section of Isaiah that I ask you to read from is a beautiful section from about chapter 40 on. Of declaring the glory of God. And in particular of showing how he is so much superior to anything that would be called God. And one of the greatest accounts that we have of prophecy fulfilled is in this. And that's Cyrus. Cyrus, the king of Persia. His account of taking Babylon, the great city of Babylon, is Fantastic! It's something that is recorded in history. It's something that is indisputable what happened. And as we'll talk about in a second, it's very interesting how people try to get around the fact that God's word tells us about it long in advance of when it occurred. Go to chapter 45. I want us to focus primarily on chapter 45, but we'll reference other passages. Isaiah chapter 45. Now, first of all, before we go any further, does anybody know when was Isaiah written? Before then. That's good. Before the fall of Jerusalem. The book of Isaiah was written during the reign of Josiah. So, if you remember your history, you have Josiah, the last good king of Judah. Israel had already been taken away captive by the Assyrians and had been dispersed into the Assyrian Empire. But Judah was still there. Josiah, during his reign, is when Isaiah is making these prophecies. After Josiah dies, you have two or three of his sons and nephews and uncles and brothers who reign in the country for a number of years, then Judah is taken away by the Babylonians. They're in Babylon for 70 years. Do you remember somebody who was raised to great power in both of the time of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and then in the reign of Darius, 
the Mede, who conquered the Babylonian Empire with Cyrus, who we're going to talk about. Daniel. So we've got a lengthy period of time. Roughly 120 to 150 years is the difference in time between when Isaiah gave his prophecy and when we have the fulfillment in Cyrus. That's pretty impressive. I mean, just, just, just predicting something like the fall of Babylon. Remember, what was the city of Babylon like? It was a huge metropolis. The description they have of the wall that was built around the city was that outside of the buildings, the watchtowers and things that were built on it, in the middle part of the wall, you could ride a chariot with four horses around the wall of Babylon. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Huge city. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, they talk about. Basically, the city was large enough that inside they had fields. They had, art, they had their, uh, were growing things within it. It was fed by the river Euphrates. Very wide, fast-flowing river. So they had an almost unlimited supply of water. With that, the fact that they could grow their own produce within the city walls itself meant that it was virtually impregnable. Nobody even thought about trying to defeat Babylon, to, to scale the walls, to pull it down, to get inside. They could withstand any military might. Nobody even thought about trying to, to take the city of Babylon because it was impossible. That's why the Lord built it up that way so that he could show just what a great God he is. Isaiah chapter 44, the last verse before we get into chapter 44, 45 rather, the Lord says, Thus saith, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and the temple Thy, thy foundations shall be laid. Very interesting. First of all, notice, the Lord just doesn't say, there's going to come out someone who's going to conquer Babylon. He names him. Cyrus. That's pretty impressive. 150 years before the event, to name the man. You need to read the history accounts of it, brethren. His grandfather, Astyages, who was the king of the, of the Persians, had heard one of their soothsayers had said that your grandson is going to overthrow you someday. So he did what any wise king of that era did. He gave him to one of his assistants to take out and kill as an infant. But the man had compassion on the child and took him to one of the royal herdsmen, one of the one of the. Uh, you know, people that take, took care of the, the sheep out in the boonies of the king and had him raise him as his own son. So he was out of the way. Years later, he becomes up in prominence as a military officer. And, you know, it's interesting how genetics, how what the Lord puts into us comes through no matter where you are. Uh, the accounts are that he was very unique and very different. 
And his grandfather, who was still alive and still on the throne one day in talking with the army officers and seeing him, recognized him and said and pulled aside the uh, uh, officer. He said to to take him out and get rid of him, said, whose son is that? Well, that's the chief herdsman's son. He looks a little familiar to me. Well, you're right. That's your grandson. Again, he did what any reasonable monarch in those days would do. He had him killed. But he let his grandson survive. And pulled him into the army. Strange. At one point he wants to kill him. Then another time he's going to let him live. Brethren, the Lord controls your thoughts. The Lord controls our minds. That's why it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Brethren, the Lord can turn you over to whatever your greatest fear is. He can bring it to pass if you're not serving him right. But notice it says here, he's my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple. Thy foundations shall be laid. Turn over to Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Look at verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in the writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me and hath charged. He hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord is God be with him and let him go up. Amen. Here's the fulfillment of Isaiah 44, 28. Turn the page or look down whatever it is in your Bible. The next chapter Ezra chapter one. Basically repeats it, except it gives us more detail. Skip down to verse three. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem and whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth. Let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts. Beside the free will offering of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Cyrus was instrumental in rebuilding the city and the temple. And it's very interesting. Here in Ezra and over here in Chronicles, it tells us specifically about the building of the temple. Right. He mentions that. So Bible skeptics, excuse me, Bible scholars, they like to, uh, you know, they don't like the absolute precision of Scripture. They like to make it fudge a little bit so they can make things fit with with secular chronology, which is inaccurate. Okay, And they say that, well, actually, it was like Artaxerxes II who actually had Jerusalem rebuilt, you know, and this was just to do this. But. What does our passage, our prophecy say? 
The, the prophecy said that he would have Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. He gave instructions for both. Look at verse 1 in the next chapter, first few verses. Thus saith, to, thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have upholden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. Okay? Loose the loins of kings. That means he'll make them very afraid. And if you read anything in history about what he did, he conquered the Lydian Empire, he conquered the Median Empire, and then he conquered Babylon. So you could say that's true. But turn over to Daniel. Turn over to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is the account of what was going on inside the city of Babylon, actually inside the royal palace. The night that Babylon fell and that Cyrus took the city. Verse 1 tells us, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of Gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster which is of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed. And his knees smote one against another. Pretty literal interpretation. Pretty liberal, I should say. Fulfillment of a prophecy, don't you think? If you were to read on the account, you'd know what was written on that wall. Many, many, tekel, eupharsin. Many, which Daniel was the only one who could interpret for them. God hath numbered the kingdom and finished it. Tekel. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Euphorson, Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30, in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Mede took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Darius was the co-regent. He was the co General over the armies was Cyrus. He died a few years later, and Cyrus was the sole ruler of the Persian Empire. It was a combined army of the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians took over. So here we see the Lord loosed the loins of kings. Continue here. To open before him the two-leaved gates. And the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness 
and hidden riches of secret places. Herodotus, the Greek historian, gives a great account of what happened. Talks about the fact that the city is divided into two portions by the river. That's the river Euphrates, which runs through the midst of it. This river is the Euphrates, a broad, deep, swift stream, which rises in Armenia and empties itself into the Eritrean Sea. At the river's end of these cross streets, there are many cross streets going through the city to this, are low gates in the fence that skirts the stream, which are, like the great gates in the outer wall, all of brass and open towards the water. This great city Babylon, to get into it, you had great gates of brass. And then as the river ran through the middle of the city, on either side of it, they had gates of brass. So you could get into the river from inside the city. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Very interesting. For a a couple of years, Cyrus was in war, taking over the reigning, the area, the armies and the kingdoms around the area. And in a two year period, he began to his preparations around Babylon itself, which was the last major piece to conquer. There was a huge lake that Nebuchadnezzar had built upstream that fed to make sure that there was always water flowing through the Euphrates so that, A, you always had water available so that it didn't matter how long anyone tried to besiege you, you could withstand that siege. Well, what Cyrus did is he had his engineers come and design outlets on either side of that lake. They built trenches to pull the water away, but they left the lake intact until he had conquered in all the surrounding area. Then he came and besieged the city of Babylon itself. All this is in history. Numerous accounts of it. He besieged the city. The Babylonian army came out to fight him. He handily defeated them in an initial battle outside the, city, outside the gates of Babylon. They immediately turned right in, slammed those bronze gates shut. And started to have a party because they knew, hey, we've got many months of supplies set aside. Plus, we can grow our own food inside. Let's have a party. We don't need to worry about these Medes and Persians. As soon as they went inside, Cyrus had broke his forces into two groups. One at the top of the city. Another at the bottom of the city, right next to the Euphrates River. He then gave the order for his engineers to pull out all the floodgates to remove all the water from the Euphrates. About midnight, took a number of hours for that to run off, and about midnight, it was down low enough to where the troops could come marching in to the riverbanks from each direction. Because they were so confident of the, of the fact that no one could take the city, the guards had forgotten to lock the gates along the river. So his forces were able to march right in, come right up the stairs, 
Everybody was out enjoying themselves, having a great party. His troops were able to march directly to the imperial palace, surround it, go inside. How much fight do you get from a drunken man? Easily they were able to overcome the palace guard and take the king of Babylon and slay him. The next day when the people woke up and they realized, oh, we've got all these Medes and Persians inside the city. They immediately cheered them as deliverers and submitted. The great city of Babylon was taken in one night's time, not a day's time, one night's time. And in his previous conquests, one of the great things, again, the Lord moves the hearts of men. Cyrus was known as a very benevolent ruler. In the previous countries we had conquered, you know, normally the, the, you conquer a people and what do you do? You put everybody to the sword and you say, you do it my way or else. When he would conquer, for example, when he conquered the Lydian Empire, basically it was, we're just delivering you from Babylon, from the oppression you've been under. What gods do you worship? Oh, that's fine. You continue worshiping your gods. Who are the, who are the rulers of your city? They can continue to rule their cities. You'll just be a province of our new Persian Empire. But you run it as you see fit. He had done that with the Lydians, had done this with the Medes, had done this with all the people he'd conquered. So that when he came to Babylon, you had two different groups. You had the king and his supporters, and then you had the rest of the normal people. And the normal people, the word they had was, hey, he's a good guy. He's not going to give us any problems. And he's definitely going to be better than the guy here that's been taxing us to death. So that the Lord orchestrated the entire event so that there was, again, hardly, hardly a man lost on the Persian side in taking a Babylon. Babylon, a city that I believe is like 60 miles in circumference. Double thick walls, like I said, thick enough that you could ride chariots across the top. An impregnable city was taken in one night's time. And again, if we turn to the scholarly front, you got a problem. You know, scholars don't like the idea that God could be what he describes himself to be. They like naturalistic explanations for everything. And when you have an account that says, Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Oh, oh, by the way, go back up to verse 27 of the previous chapter, 44. How does it describe what the Lord does? Before he talks about Cyrus himself. That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. The Lord had already prophesied that Cyrus would dry up the river Euphrates. Before Cyrus took it, took the city of Babylon. What the scholars like to do is you look at the book of Isaiah is they think it was written by two different men or three or four, maybe five or six nowadays. But at least back in the 1800s, what they would say is that, well, you know, if you read up through chapter one, chapter one through thirty nine. Yeah, that could have been written by Isaiah in the time of of Josiah. 
But all this stuff in the 40s and on, nah, that had to be written by somebody at the same time that this was happening. So they call him the Deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah. Well, brethren, all I can say is there have been skeptics from day one. There have been men who have denied and ignored what God has said he would do from day one. There have been Cain's. Who, when the Lord said, all you have to do is do what I tell you to do, and your countenance will be fine. You'll be accepted if you do what I tell you to do. And Cain could have cared less what the Lord had to say. Right? He liked his offering. He liked his way. And he didn't like God's way. This is the way it is with scholars. Look at the precision, brethren. Verse 27, the rivers are dried up. Verse 28, Cyrus by name is mentioned. And in verse 28, we have the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple mentioned. At the time it was was prophesied, though, they were standing. And Judah was an independent country. How would Isaiah even know they're going to be taken away? Remember, read the book of Nehemiah. They were distraught at how well it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They didn't think. I mean, they were wondering, how is this ever going to be rebuilt? Yet the book of Nehemiah tells us about the rebuilding of the city. Ezra tells us about the rebuilding of the temple that God did. And all of this prophesied 120 to 150 years before the fact. Right. And why does God do it? Let's continue back where we were in Isaiah 45. Verse 3. That thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob is my servant's, for Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Here he's talking to Cyrus. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Do you think maybe that Cyrus actually got to hear those words read to him? Who was his chief advisor? Who was the number one advisor in the Babylonian Empire who then got promoted to be the first president of the Persian Empire? Daniel. Daniel had this. Because look at the way the Lord had it written. He is writing it to Cyrus to let him know how he did what he did. Since foretelling future events is a proof of divine power, the Lord appeals to this. For men to know that he's the only living and true God, brethren. Let's just take a look in this. Or surrounding chapters with a couple of other passages to show this. 
41, Isaiah 41, starting at verse 21. Oh, I mean, there's so many different places in this passage you could go to. But we'll start with verse 21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be. That they may be, that they may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are come hereafter that we may know that you're gods. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, you're nothing and your work of naught. an abomination is he that chooseth you. That's how the Lord speaks to pagan gods and to those who would choose them. Look and see how God identifies his exclusive glory to the, in the fact that he can easily declare the future. Deuteronomy, excuse me, Isaiah 42, starting at verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The Lord's boasting. The Lord's saying, look, <laughs> I've told you what's gone before. I created all things. I'm going to tell you what's going to come in the future. And it's going to come to pass because I am God. Right. Brethren, I hope you're getting a lesson here, too. Those of us who have been raised in this time in the world, in this part of the world, where a doctrine called premillennialism is rampant. Which basically says that God wrote things that are going to occur way in the future. You're not going to be here when they occur. You're not going to see them come to pass. They're just nice things, I guess, to make movies out of and to write novels for. Okay? And to get you all excited about. Though I don't know why you'd get excited about things that you're not going to see and you're not going to participate in. But that's their philosophy, I guess. I guess it's a sci-fi philosophy, you know. Think of all these weird things that are going to happen and get all excited about them. I mean, it's just as much fiction to us because if it turns out to be true, we're not going to be here to see it. I mean, they tell you things. All this stuff in the Bible is way out there. No. Most of the stuff in the Bible, just about everything we know of has been fulfilled, brethren. And it's been fulfilled so we can know. The God of the Bible is true. The God of the Bible is God, and there is none else. Amen. Notice, it's not just like there may be somebody else who can compete with him. No. What's he saying here? This same being who prophesied Cyrus is going to come. I'm going to pull the river down. He's going to march his troops in by the gates of brass and take it all. That kind of accuracy that you can see 130, 150 years later. I'm God. There's nobody else. So you see, brethren, you got prima facie evidence right there. Anybody wants to talk about anything else, you can just say, I've got proof he's not God. Because there's only one being who claims to be able to do certain things, and he's done it. We've got the historical record of Bible and God haters. 
to prove that he did it. Look at chapter 44. Verses 6 and 8. Here God challenges any to identify another God who can do the same kind of things. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and things that are that are coming and shall come. Let them show unto them. Fear you not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Now think about that. Basically, the Lord says that, you know, if you want to have a discussion with God, it's going to be a monologue. It's going to be a monologue because I'm it. You know, I've looked around. You know, here's my evidence. You tell me. You show me anybody else. Hey, I've looked around. I don't see anybody on my level. You don't need to be afraid. I'm God. There is none else. Look at 46. Isaiah 46. What I started with. Verses 9 and 11. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And, the, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Brethren, it's because of passages like this that our brethren who are going through the fulfillment of prophecy of the little horn of Daniel, of the great whore of Rome, persecuting the saints and wearing them out for twelve hundred and fifty years. It's because they saw this and they knew this, that they could go through what they went through. They could look back at Osiris and say, wow, that's God that could say that. Hey, he said that there's going to be this group. Oh, they're going to they're going to sound like God. Oh, in the temple of God. That's, you know, I can see the church. It calls itself the church of Rome. I can see the heresy they've fallen into. That must be the uh, iniquity working. Yeah. Oh, I see what's gone away to keep them from having their hellacious power. The seasons of Rome are gone. Oh, yeah. And now they're persecuting us, just like it said, just like our brother John said in the book of Revelation. The dragon coming out to persecute the woman and her seed. Right. Yes. Oh, but it tells us that it's going to have a time when it's going to come to an end, when the Lord's going to kill it. And we won't have to worry about it. So I can endure these afflictions because I've got the evidence here that what God says in his book is true and right. I've got this prophecy over here. It's going to come out just like he described it. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I have. Also, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. 
I will also do it. Amen. But you know what, brethren? As I said, we believe most of prophecy has been fulfilled. We believe that most of prophecy, about the only thing left, is for the Lord to come take us. How this should come to encourage our hearts is when we look at passages like this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even now at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Brethren, are any of these things com- of comfort to you? Are any of these things precious to you? You can believe them. They're true. The same God who inspired Paul to say this is the same God who inspired Isaiah to give his prophecy. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Jesus Christ making intercession for us. It's a fact. He's there doing it right now, brethren. God said it. What God said in the old was true. What God says in the new is true. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Are the things that come into your life, brethren, that you feel are going to separate you from God? That you feel pull you away from Him? Do you ever have things occur? I mean, it could be illness. They could be problems at work. They could be problems in your family. They could be your own heart and your own frailty. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death. It's the greatest thing that we face, isn't it? It ends it all. At least this world. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. All too many things in this life that can steal our hearts away from the Lord, right? Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. And let me ask you this. Are you a creature? Are you a creature? 
Well, you know what then? What Paul's telling us here is that if you're one of his, not even you can separate. You can't interrupt your fellowship. Oh, you very well can do that. But you cannot separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is just one passage, brethren, I, I just chose as an example. You take any other promise in the Bible, Old or New Testament. If God wrote it, if God said it, he meant it, it's true, and he will fulfill that promise in your life. That is the power of prophecy, brethren. That's why Osiris should be someone we like to read about. We should glory in all the details of that. Because that shows that the God we worship knows everything and has all the power in the world. And and notice how many times they say that I've done it. I've purposed it. He's got integrity. He likes to do things to be known. He does things like Cyrus so that we can trust in him and all the other promises he's given us. May this encourage our hearts, brethren, and lift us up in his ways is my prayer.